0: Welcome back, Call to Adventure podcast, Aunt Luke and Pete Williams. How
1: hey, boys? Good, very mate. well. Awesome. Thanks for coming on. Mate, I'm excited to be here. I am, especially after your 15 second spill. I'm excited to see where this goes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, those,
2: those jokes were off camera. Don't <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> cool.
0: Pete. First time meeting Luke. Absolutely. So I'd love to. Handsome young man. Yeah. Dashing both of you. (laughs) I was thinking the exact same thing.
1: There you go.
2: Yeah. We're talking about mirrors and the importance of mirrors. Yeah, mirrors. It's like I'm looking at myself right now. (laughs) That's (laughs) it, (laughs) exactly.
0: Quick intro, and
2: then we'll go. Let's do it.
0: We'll go the big, the small. Who are
2: are you, Pete? Oh, so self intro, is it? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, here we go. Um, Pete Williams. Yeah. Kind of had a few businesses over the journey. When I was 21, sold the MCG for 500 bucks, which is a bit of a crazy crazy thing to talk about since then started yeah, a few companies written a couple of books got a couple of kids so there's always you know joking before fires to put out and things to deal with so lots to chat about if you want to go down yeah. those rabbit holes
1: instantly like a big hook is sold the mcg for 500 <laughs> Such a great. I, like, I briefly know about it but yep. what the fuck
2: yeah <laughs> it is and it's been like that it's, it's 20 years this year since i've done it so it's a pretty crazy one but when i was so when i was um at university, I um, worked at Athlete's Foot. I'll give you a bit of a background story to it. So I worked at Athlete's Foot, selling shoes, all that sort of stuff. Finished up my degree and was like, what am I going to do with my life? I don't want to kind of go straight to work. So kind of taught my way into being able to go on a reconnaissance mission, for want of a better term, to America with Athlete's Foot. So the plan was to go to America for six months, start in Florida, and work at a whole bunch of different Athlete's Foot stores across the country until I made it back to LA and then come home and kind of share all the – interesting insights i sort of learned so 21 year old aussie accent starting out about half an hour from south beach in miami and then i spent the whole six months in that one store living a good life in south beach because you know aussie accents go far in florida <laughs> so that was a lot of fun um ended up you know many meeting a girl at the end the usual kind of you know love story kind of thing that happened while i was away my visa ran out had to hightail it back to australia but the plan was to actually move back to America. At the time, she was from New York originally, was living in Florida, so the goal, sad to say, it publicly was move back to America and try and get a job with Donald Trump. Now, this was twenty years ago, mind you, well before all the political crap when he was just, you know, in theory, a successful entrepreneur with a reality TV show. It would have been cool to go and work from in New York City. So that was the plan: move back with her. So had to get my, you know, new visa and all that sort of paperwork sorted. So. Helped, um, I guess, establish a new store that started um, with Athlete's Foot in that time when I got back. So it was pretty, you know, bad bad pun, but not a lot of foot traffic coming <laughs> through the store. I love a bad pun, so it's going to go downhill from here. But um, the, the, the store only sort of just started, so it wasn't that busy. So I spent a bit of time behind the counter reading books. And I was reading this one book, which has the worst title in the world, and I don't recommend anyone buying the book, but it did change my life 20 years ago. It's called The One Minute Millionaire. Anyway, in one random chapter in the book, it kind of, as a throwaway comment, references this guy back in like the late 80s or early 90s who bought all the timber that was the walkway of the Brooklyn Bridge in New York City. And, you know, word around the campfire was that he made like a couple of million bucks selling like little certificates, you know, sort of A5 sort of size with a inch by inch piece of the timber and I'm like, that's a really cool idea. You know, daiquiris and drinks in Miami were really expensive. I so had a pretty big credit card bill to pay off. So I started thinking, how can I take that idea and kind of rip it off and do it here in Australia? And I realised that the MCG was about to go, I had just started a redevelopment for the Commonwealth Games that we had here in 2006. You know, 20 years later, you know, we're kicking the tyres and not doing the Commonwealth Games. And I think we've screwed the whole mm. Commonwealth Games in its own, that's a whole story. But at the time... The MCD was getting redeveloped. And I remember going to you know footy matches and cricket matches with my old man, sitting on really shitty, annoying wooden seats. I'm like, that's my ticket. So literally it was a Monday or Tuesday morning. There was no one in the, in the store. So I started making phone calls to people I knew and contacts to try and figure out how could I get my hands on some of this timber. And long story short, found the wrecking company that was doing the demolition got on the phone to them and said, you know, do you have any timber left? They're like, yeah, we've got a whole bunch of timber from the CDC in our warehouse, we've also got a whole bunch of carpet. Now, for those who kind of know Aussie Rules footy or cricket, the members pavilion, the old members pavilion that was part of the MCG, like had really famous carpet. Dog ugly, like red, blue, gold kind of MCC members crest on there. And they're like, oh, we've got a whole bunch of carpet from the dining room, which was in the Ponsford stand, which was the first part of the, the MCG that was getting redeveloped. And I'm like, I'll buy it. So I bought it all over the phone, side on scene, and then basically went and picked it up and worked with a local framer and got a series of memorabilia pieces made up with a photo of the MCG, uh, a square of this carpet and a little plaque sort of outlining you know, the history of the MCG in this limited edition kind of approach. And then wrote a press release. 21-year-old sells the MCG for $500. And as you can imagine, you know this is you know kind of not pre-internet, but you know, not much going on the internet. So it. radio, TV, news went... Bonkers with the story because it was such a you know interesting story. The mm. MCG so important to Australia and Australian sport and stuff like that. So it went bananas, and that kind of was the, the crazy MCG story that led into some speaking engagements. And I wrote a book about it, which, which in hindsight's title is almost as bad as the book that gave me the inspiration. The publisher's kind of encouraged me to call it "How to Turn Your Million Dollar Idea into a Reality." Again, it's a book. I don't. It's my book, but I don't recommend you buy it. It's shit. <laughs> um, but. Yeah, so that was a sort of the crazy kind of first serious project I ever did, which was a, a really cool foundation. And I'm literally still milking it 20 years on, telling it on podcasts like this, mm. which is kind of cool.
1: Fuck, that's an incredible story, man. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. This is like There were so many questions <laughs> within that. Like I could have gone... Uh, this the, the first thing that I want to ask on that is that mindset, has that always been something that you've had, the entrepreneurial seeking outside and having these creative ideas? Yeah, I think... Again, another really bad story. Mum, my mum loves to tell
2: this one, and I don't know how true it is, but she's milked it more than I've milked the MCG story, is <laughs> <It's laughs> that apparently when I was three or four, I wrote, I'd draw, drawn the walls of the house, arrows all the way down the hallway. And I don't know if this was true or not, but mum tells it. In her loving wisdom, she knelt down beside me before she told me off and apparently said to me, like, why would you do that? And my answer at three or four was apparently so you can find the, the the way to my office mummy. So I've kind of always been that way inclined. I started a web development company when I was 16, um and doing some sort of sporting clubs and local schools and businesses websites and stuff like that back in the late 90s sort of in the early days of the internet so i kind of always had that kind of drive for whatever weird reason my parents aren't entrepreneurs you know my mm. grandparents were but Mum and dad weren't Mum was a math teacher and dad ran a you know a, a warehousing kind of um business or worked in warehousing didn't own the business but i don't know where it came from but it's always been that that way for me in a weird kind of sense so it was wasn't that much of a stretch and my theory at the time was I've got big credit card debt, like I'm buying this for next to nothing because the wrecking company had no perceived value on it because it's, mm. it's really one of those trash to treasure stories. Yeah. It's, it's a bit of a silly mm. analogy, but it kind of is that in that they just saw it as trash. They were getting paid to do the demolition. So to them, it was just waste and rubble. But to me, I was like, oh, there's money in this. Mm. So I you know, basically borrowed some some money to sort of be able to buy it, but it was you know, a couple of grand. It wasn't much at all. Mm. Um, I had a bit of a partner who sort of helped with the project. So I, I didn't have much to lose. Like It wasn't like I was sitting at this big organisation having to get VC funding and investors and all that sort of stuff you hear about these days. It was a couple of grand, and the whole way we made it is that the frames were kind of made to order. We knew how much carpet we had, so we knew how many frames we could actually make up. So it was like a very – defined limited edition series but the way it worked is I kind of framed it as um, it's a bad pun again I didn't mean to say that one but the way we kind of framed the project was that okay there's so much demand for this it's going to take you three or four weeks to get your frame so you, you call up you order it or you fax your order through on my mum's fax machine on the kitchen table and it was like okay it's a three week lead time so someone would pay me uh, for the frame we'd charge the credit card and then it was like okay dave um who ran the framing store in my local town back of out <laughs> west of melbourne dave we've got three more orders today we've got seven more orders today can you go make some more frames so we were getting paid up front mm. before oh, we had to go and produce the frame so there was no massive cash out like, except for just the literal trash at the start and then it was just a very cash flow positive business that mm. kind of just evolved organically which is really cool
1: do you how many pieces were you able to sell
2: so it worked out to be almost a basketball court's worth of carpet. Mm-hmm. And then each, each carpet piece was about the size of an A4 sheet of paper. So it was a few thousand all up. And, you know, there's still some available today. Like mm-hmm. I'm still selling one every couple of months just randomly because wow. someone's dad's turning 80 and he played, you know, three mm-hmm. games for the Sydney Swans and the MCG. And so the kids go, oh, we'll buy you a piece of the MCG to kind of remem- remember that kind of memory and stuff like that. So they, they still kind of sell every now and again. Um, But a few thousand all up.
0: Yeah.
2: Same process? Is it just call up?
0: No, nah, <laughs> not so much anymore.
2: We, I kind of have a little bit of a, a stockpile now. It's only about four or five frames at a yeah. time. Again, not to sort of, you know, I don't want to have a, a warehouse full of frames that might not sell. But yeah. again, we know that this series is only going to have 400 in that sort of design or style or layout. So we kind of limit every series. Uh, so I kind of know that, okay, the next ones we're going to release are number 100, 101, 102. So we'll make that. I'll have them sitting and sort of shit them out as we go. And when yeah. it gets close to, you know, not having many left, it's like, okay, can you guys make another 10 for me and mm. do it that way? So, again, it's pretty cash flow neutral or positive at least.
1: Mm, that's so, it makes me just think of the right thing in the wrong place has no value. Absolutely. If you have, if you're like, you know, you look at it in your personal life, if you're placing yourself in the wrong environment, yeah. people won't perceive your value. So it's like find where you're worth. 100%.
2: Mm. I think it goes, in yeah, for, for people, for products, for things. There's so many examples of that sort of stuff. I mm. love it. It's mm. a good mindset.
0: Yeah. As a early early twenties, yeah, as a young buck back then, you got your fifteen 15- seconds 15 minutes of <laughs> fame or whatever you want to call it yep. but like how, how did you manage that on a personal level how did you manage the rise and then how did you also manage the post yeah good question i think
2: it, like it was a very different world 20 years ago yeah. and it's, it's weird to say it, and i feel old 41 41 42 years old oh, i was a different yeah, you're world blowing my
1: mind with the facts and stuff I'm like, well literally it was like bro, that, yeah. the, you know
2: the internet wasn't a thing social media wasn't a thing like the only outlet you had was newspapers radio television like the internet really wasn't thing we had a website for it but we yeah. we couldn't even take orders over the internet the back then mm. like how, how would you do that it was it was bizarre is,
0: is it just a lot more trust that people had to
2: invest yeah. in back then? 100 percent. like so literally we had an order form on the website people could download it was a pdf they'd print it out write their credit card details no and, then, and then fax <laughs> the order oh my, God. To my literally my mom's home phone number and the fax machine would just <laughs> oh run and pay <laughs> that's how it worked like, that's how we ordered shit back 20 years ago did like, that feel cool though
0: when it, came it was awesome because
2: because the crazy thing was I was still working at athlete's foot. Yeah. Okay. So I was still had my day job because you know I, was, I I didn't know how this thing was going to go. Yeah. So I'd be at you know at work during the day dealing with people's smelly feet. I'd come <laughs> home and see like fifteen orders and like twenty grand sitting on the on mum's kitchen table. That's sick. like how That's cool is this? Cool. Yeah. So um that was the best thing about it is you'd come home and just see like reels of, of faxes that mum had collected and put on the pile table for me and I'd then call Dave and like oh, mate we've got seven more today can you go and order those and. Again, because I was working athlete's foot, like I then had to get a courier coming to do the delivery. So the whole business was very streamlined and automated, Mm. not because of any wisdom or science I actually put to it. It was just out of the way necessity forced the business to kind of happen. Um, So yeah, in terms of the question about the fame and stuff, there wasn't really that in the same sense there is today. Like Mm. it, it can't go viral in the way that social media, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram kind of, you know, if it happened today it'd be very different experiencing because social media would blow it up a lot more, probably would have sold a lot more frames quicker, which would have been nicer, but there would have been a bit more of that kind of podcast celebrity conversation happening at the time. Whereas back in the day, you had three TV stations, two newspapers in Melbourne and and a couple of radio stations. So there was like five or 10 kind of max articles over a period of time, which was blowing up back in the day, but that Mm. was it. There was 10 pieces of content. That's all you needed because... Everyone watched the same news. Everyone read the same newspapers. There wasn't the breadth of um, platforms there are today. So you say blowing up, but it's very different to the, the context of blowing up yeah. in today. So there wasn't really this wave of fame or anything to really deal with. It's just like, cool, I'm on the news. I'm pitching this thing. Okay, mum's cut it out and put it on the fridge and okay, next.
0: Yeah. it's different in that regard. I guess how about the success of it? Cause it was, yeah. it was a huge Absolutely. success, right? Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. How did you manage the, the peak of it? And then,
2: yeah, good question. Yeah. So again, you know, because I was still working at athletes foot, it was mm. kind of this side project. It was a side hustle before side hustles kind of existed, which is kind of weird to say.
1: You started the trend. Oh uh, yeah, that's yeah, it. Yeah,
2: yeah. Absolutely. I should have <laughs> trademarked it. <No. laughs> um, so, you know, it kind of evolved that way, um, which was kind of cool. And then, you know, I got, I got approached for a book deal off the back of it, which was kind of pretty awesome. Um, you know, again, I think I could have got a lot more advice on how to write a good book because, you know, it's a kind of it's <laughs> 21 year old writing a business advice book was a bit ridiculous <laughs> in, in, in the context, you know. I think in hindsight I could have written a much better book if I was kind of got my ego out of the way. I think yeah. at 21, like that was probably the biggest thing was that I think I didn't – I wasn't arrogant in any sense of the imagination but, okay, I've done this thing, got the media attention and got – a book deal with an advance which is kind of rare I wasn't a big advance but it was still an advance um that I was like oh cool I know how to tell people how to run a business so I kind of you know told the story of the MCG and then kind of used a whole bunch of other references of business books but I kind of wrote it as if I was the expert and you look back on it now and it's just cringy as hell like I don't like it um because it's like well I didn't really have much credibility to talk about back then I hadn't had many wins I had one project which was successful and I could have Talked about that project and then sort of said, and you know, here's other examples of other people who have done some stuff, as opposed to here's how you should name your business. Mm. Like, how the hell would I know about naming business? I had one project, MCG Memories, that got me a cease and desist letter from the MCG. Like, I can't really be telling people about that sort of stuff. Mm. So, um, that was probably the biggest lesson in hindsight was just like, could have done that a lot better.
1: Yeah. What were you thinking when you had this start to gain traction and you're starting yep. to make some good money from it and you're working at athlete's foot and you're like, is there, was there a point where you're like, oh, what am I doing here? Uh,
2: not really because I think you
1: know as much as there there's some good money to be made
2: from the MCG project, like it had a finite life. Mm. It wasn't like I'd invented this new widget or anything like that. It was like, okay, this business can build and grow. Like I knew I didn't want to go into the sports memorabilia business because one of the things we did with the marketing over a period of time is we kind of – like I think this is a good marketing lesson anyway that I didn't mention in the book, funnily enough, is like picking an enemy. So we kind of really went to town on most sports memorabilia is fake in that you know, they manufacture a bunch of photos, get athletes to sign them, and now we've got a limited edition 100-piece series or whatever it might be. And back, for whatever reason, 20 years ago, sports memorabilia was massive. Like it was on the TV, advertised during sporting games and cricket and all that sort of stuff. And so investing in sports memorabilia was a big thing. Mm. But it was mostly manufactured. Like, okay, we're going to do a limited edition series of you know, 20 signed jerseys. Well, they just go and print – they weren't game-worn jerseys. They were just 20 jerseys and frame them up and now they're suddenly memorabilia. So we kind of took this big hard line that, um, you know, that's our enemy. We're going against those guys. Um, so I, I didn't want to create a memorabilia business. So I was like, okay, this has got a finite life. Okay, great. It's going to bring a big cash in there, but, like, I'm still going to need a job. I'm, I can't retire off this necessarily. Mm. So I kind of was always – and, and still the vision was still to go back to America. It was like, do this project, get it done and I'll go back to America. So that was kind of the vision. Um, so I didn't really um, ever think I'm going to quit this completely because I, I probably quit. In hindsight, again, like, well, if I'm going to go to America, why am I sitting here selling shoes mm. when I could just live off this money? But it never really came to that. It kind of was like, oh, well, we'll just keep doing this as a bit of a side thing and let it
1: trickle through did you end up back in america
2: uh no i've been to america a shit ton since but no the the relationship and my mum, mum was sick actually at the time and long distance kind of crap so that
0: never had didn't ever. want to work for trump either no exactly yeah. kind of
2: wised up somehow yeah. so, so i can predict <laughs> the future so that didn't end up, happening. Yeah, nice. I ended up staying here
0: mm. and then take us through the timeline of like the business adventures of business ventures from that how did yeah. the momentum roll into, yeah. into um, the following years
2: So I kind of started doing a bit of, you know, some speaking gigs, telling the MCG story and stuff like that and and doing some other work and ended up, I guess the next big thing was I stumbled into telecommunications. Like I'm not a telco guy but the core businesses I've had for the last 20 years primarily have been in the telco space. Um, I'd done some some work indirectly with these two brothers that the best way to describe their business at the time was selling discounted phone bills. It's the best way to describe them. Um, And so I started working with those guys a little bit and we kind of realised that there was this thing called Google that was starting. Like this is, I'm aging myself so badly here. You guys look at me going, what the hell? Google hasn't always existed. But you know, like people were going, going to the internet, going to Google to really search for problems they had. Like the internet was this thing and it existed, but it wasn't the primary place you went to solve the problems you had. You know, these days you've got a problem. First thing you do is you whip out your phone, you go to Google and you search for a provider or a company or whatever it might be. Why am I sick? Yeah, exactly. Why am I sick? Or like, you know, I want to buy some shoes. You go to Google to search them Mm. or whatever it might be. But, you know, back, you know, 18, 19 years ago, that was only sort of the trend that was starting to happen. And we kind of realised that no one in the telco space in Australia kind of owned online. So basically I became a business partner with these guys and we pivoted the business from those discounted call rates fundamentally to a phone system business. So we'd actually sell and install phone systems to offices all around the country. So it was a, wasn't a big pivot from them. They had some people in the network. But again, we weren't phone tech guys. So we basically became a sales and marketing company in the, in the hardware space. So we would basically roll out um, and sell phone systems to companies all around the country, five, 10, 20 grand solutions. Uh, but then we had to find a way to install them because we had no idea. So we eventually basically found subcontractors, other, almost our competitors really, in different locations around the country to actually go and install it. So we'd sell a client in Port Moresby via phone system. They'd pay us the 10 grand for the system or whatever it might've been. We'd ship the goods to their office and then we'd, we'd find a local technician to go mm-hmm. in and actually do the installation. So we scaled that really, really fast because we didn't have to worry about a lot of staff. It was just sales and marketing, mm-hmm. which was great. So you know it kind of took almost, again, whether it was consciously or subconsciously, I can't really remember- the same sort of models from the MCG staff and then mm-hmm. we get paid up front and then we'd outsource the implementation, which was great. And we grew pretty quickly. We then hit a ceiling though, in terms of like, we, we grew and we're kind of like, Oh, we're, we're growing. We, we, we hit a ceiling. Why can't we grow any further? And we kind of started looking at the business to try and figure out what the problems were. And that's kind of where we kind of discovered some of the stuff we needed to fix to, to scale and move forward from there. Mm. And then since that, I've sort of obviously had other ventures since and investing in a few businesses and consulting stuff and mm. things like that. So yeah. that was sort of the big kind of growth off the back of the, the MCG project
0: in terms of the next big industry and business. Mm. 20 years in business or well, 20 plus years in business yeah. and you've developed your own framework over that time. Yeah. When, yeah. When did the seven levers
2: framework? Yeah. Good unfold? question. It well It's like we set this up, which we didn't. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, that, we, we did. Yeah. Well, cause the funny thing was like the, we hit that ceiling I, I talked about in that we kind of started figuring out, well, what was our problem with the business? Like what caused this limitation for our growth? So we started kind of analyzing, okay, what, what drives a business? Like what drives revenue? What drives growth? And we started like, you know, looking at other businesses and other industries and things like that. And we kind of realized our biggest problem was like, think about if you wanted to you know, upgrade your phone system or buy new handsets or whatever, who are you going to call? Are you going to call the company that kind of sold you, took your money and then palmed you off? Or are you going to call the company that actually turned up with you know, effectively the white gloves and actually installed it, programmed it and trained on the system? You know, of course, you're going to end up calling that other company for ads, moves and changes. Because we realised we weren't getting any repeat business. And for a lot of businesses, that's where the growth comes on. It's like you, you spend all this time getting your first your client, getting them for the first-time customer, and you milk them for as long as you can. We were literally doing that and then handing the clients to our competitors. Right. Mm. So from there, we started going, well, that's an interesting kind of observation for us. Let's try and fix that. So we started hiring our own technicians and kind of owning the customer and the lifetime value of that. And over there, we kind of developed this framework of, okay, well, what are the, the drivers of – revenue in a business and profit in a business and that, becai- that became what we now call this seven levers framework which is how we've scaled all our companies now we've got you know one of the largest headset companies in australia and we've got some other whole bunch of other businesses we're involved in now and we use this model that we kind of developed out of our own kind of desperation almost if you will in terms of analyzing where we were fucking up Um, And then we can now go, okay, here's a model that we now, yeah, can actually apply to other businesses that we invest in or we grow ourselves or whatever it might be, which has been really cool. So what is Seven Levers? Cool. So Seven Levers are basically, yeah, the seven drivers of of profit in a business. So uh, effectively – nothing really is mind-blowing for anybody but when you put it all together it's actually quite interesting so just
1: before you read out the seven like cool. what is this is this a company is this like
2: yeah good question so it's 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 a framework we we've developed that i wrote a book about which i do think people's worth reading don't read my first one the book called cadence <laughs> uh is a book that i wrote a few years ago that kind of explains the framework um it has some consulting services around it i teach it now as a Class at Deakin University here in Australia. There's a few universities in the world rolling it out as well. Um, So it's kind of this – it's a framework model that we can do. So anyone can take it and use it for their businesses. There is a little bit of stuff behind it, Mm. but it's as simple as that really. beautiful. Appreciate the plug. (laughs) (laughs) So the the idea is that – okay, the first thing you do as a business owner is understand what's driving revenue in your business. So the first thing is – or the first lever that we define is is suspects. So these are the the type of people who are thinking – about being a client. So it might be the people who walk into an athlete's foot shoe store or people who visit your website or wherever it might be. Like You suspect they're going to be customers of yours. The second, so how many of those are you actually having and what are you doing to drive as many suspects in your business? They're kind of the things you look at. From there, you look at prospects. This is the, the group of suspects who actually put their hand up and say, Yeah, I want to be a customer or I, I'm more qualified. I'm taking a micro commitment. I'm trying on a pair of shoes. I'm taking the test driver of the car. I'm going to get a quote for the phone system. I'm going to um, make a booking for whatever it might be. So they're they're sort of taking more of a proactive step to become a potential customer. So what are you doing to convert those suspects into prospects and how are you you communicating to those guys? Third one is conversions. How many of those prospects actually convert into customers? How many actually open up their wallet and go, yep, I'll be a customer. So that's sort of the first three levers. And you can control that as a business owner. You can identify each of those three steps And the way you communicate, you talk, you manage, you measure, all those things are very different. And it's really important to sort of better identify all those three steps. From there, you look at revenue, which is broken up to average item price and items per sale. So what is the average price of the stuff you sell? And how are you going about getting people to buy the more expensive Mercedes as opposed to the entry level? Or how do you get them to buy the more expensive running shoe versus the entry level one or whatever it might be? Then you've got average items per sale. So would you like fries with that? completely overused mcdonald's analogy but it's true Mm. like what are you doing to get people to buy the conference phone with the phone system the tinting on the car you're selling the um doing cleaning your gutters when you're mowing their lawns there's always additional services you can offer what are you proactively currently doing in a systematic and controlled way to drive additional items per sale so that's the first five move on from there then it's transactions this is where we were completely screwing up our telco business What are you doing to get people to come back and buy again? We were giving our customers away. We were completely, you know, screwed with that. So, you know, what are you doing to actually retain those customers? What systems and processes do you have in place to actually retain and drive repeat transactions in your business? And then the final level is your margins or your expenses. What are you doing to manage and monitor and maximise those expenses in your business? So what the whole framework does is gives you two things. Firstly, it gives you a way to sort of have control and a health check of your business. They're the things that drive revenue in any business. Hairdressers, phone system businesses, e-commerce businesses, tradies, service providers, whatever it might be. Those seven levers apply to every business. And if you can't articulate what they are for you, what you're doing to influence all those things, and ideally what the measurements are, you don't really have true control of your business operations. So that's the first part it gives you. And that was really good for us because it identified for us, where should we be focusing our time? We realised that we weren't doing much or anything in transactions. We realised we were good at sort of you know, driving traffic through the marketing we were doing, but we didn't really have a good system to drive um, more items per sale. So we, we went and rejigged our entire proposals to make sure we had optionals, upsells, cross-sells mm. in our proposals to make sure we, we sold the headsets and the conference phone and the message on hold services when someone bought a phone system. So it gave us a framework to look at our business. And then the crazy thing came out of that is that we just discovered that if you increase each of those seven areas by just 10%, so you get 10% more people to your website, you get 10% more people taking that free trial, you get 10% more people coming back again. So just small 10% wins. The actual effect of that is you double the profit of your business. It's basic math. But it's mind-blowing to think that you know most people, when you want to grow your business, I've got to triple the amount of people coming to my website. I've got to expand into New Zealand. I've got to be Babe Ruth and hit home runs. But the crazy thing we found is, no, no, no. If you just 7%, 10% wins, doubles the profit in your business. So the way we took that framework, once we kind of stumbled across that, is that's how we focus our time on the business. When we're not in the business selling you know, the phone systems or, you know, the, you know, on the tools doing whatever you do as a tradie or whatever you're doing. When you're actually on your business, working on your business, that's all we focus on is what level we're working on today or this month or this week, whatever time period you have available to work on your business, how are we gonna get a 10% increase? How are we gonna improve our AdWords campaign to get 10% more traffic out of the same spend? Or how do we go and run a radio campaign that gets 10% more people to our website? How do we improve our proposals again to get 10% more people converting. What are we doing to actually get 10% more people to buy items per sale? How we get 10% more people to come back? So we might have a, you know, a conversion rate now of twenty percent conversion rate, hypothetically. How do we get it from twenty to twenty two percent? Just that ten percent increase. And if we continually cycle through that focus, that's how we've been able to scale our businesses very quickly. Cause that's our framework of focus. And that's just been mind blowing for us in terms of our growth and the business we invest investing We take that same approach. And as I said, I now teach this as a a class at Deakin University and other universities are doing it too, which is pretty cool.
0: Can you share the, the real life example? I think it was the F1 driver or the, cy- or the cycling cycles. one. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. So so the, the way I tell that story in class yeah, and, and in, in other places is that um, British cycling sucked. Like I, I'm the chair of We Ride Australia, which is the advocacy body for bums on bikes. But um, so I'm a bit of a cycling kind of guy. Anyway, back in the, like the 90s, British cycling sucked. Like cycling is like the big European sport, right? And obviously, you know, you can argue whether Britain's part of the European war, but back in the day they were still part of Europe, but they were like the laughing stock of cycling. They sucked. Until they got this new coach called Dave Brailsford who came in with this view that was very different to most. He had this view of we're not going to – our cyclists are pretty elite. To be able to get to that level and be in an Olympic team or in a professional cyclist, you're pretty damn good, Mm. of course. At that level, it's 1% or 2% difference, right? So we went, we're not going to try and teach these guy how to ride a bike better. They're, they're pretty damn good at it. They've been doing it for their whole career. We're going to look at all these small other things we can manage. So they went and spent time looking at what's the best pillows that our cyclists can sleep on on these multi-stage events so they can actually get better rest. What is the Lycra that's part of our cycling kit that our team uses to minimize abrasions and you know chafing so they can have a better day on the, on, the, on the saddle tomorrow. What about the massage oil? So all these sort of small things, the peripheral things that most people don't think about. And he called it this approach of marginal, or, sorry, aggregated marginal gains. So small marginal gains aggregated together will make the impact we need of, for cycling. And the crazy thing is that the results were astonishing. They won something like 80% of the next two Olympic medals, like got like all the medals. They won 80% of them. They won seven out of the following nine Tour de France's, like just completely blue cycling out of the water because of this marginal gains approach. So I think it's a very cool story that kind of shows you that small wins can make massive impacts. And that's kind of taking that kind of analogy into this business world. Cause I think so many business owners, whether you are a tradee or a salesperson or an e-commerce owner, it's like there's so much to do. And I don't know what to look at. I don't know what, and you're running around like a chicken with its head cut off going, what do I do? What do I do? This framework gives you a, a, a sort of a framework of focus is kind of what I talk about. It's mm-hmm. like, no, no. If you're not doing any one, if you're working on your business for growth and you can't clarify it as one of these seven areas, you're wasting your time. And it gives you, okay, every month, like let's just say one month for the next seven months, I'm going to pick a lever a month. And all I'm going to try and do is just increase what I'm currently doing by 10%. In seven months, you double your business. Now, if you have the resources to do that faster and you repeat it, you can double your business, you know, more regularly than that by just these consistent 10% wins. And it's just a phenomenal way to kind of focus your attention, give you a framework of confidence that just the math behind it backs it up.
0: Hmm.
1: The simplicity of it as well, just hearing you speak, man, it's just like, wow, all I need to do is this one thing, focus on this for a month and then the next thing for a month. Because yeah, like, like you said, man, tradies, they're just like doing so much, so much, so much Absolutely. and they don't take a step back to focus on the little things that are important. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool hearing so your speak So it's like, though, as like, trade, like this, yeah, as
2: a trader, like, okay, how do you get more people to, you know, visit your website or your Google Places listing, whatever it is that, you know, you define mm. as how people hear about you, mm. then how do you get more of those people to actually pick up and get a quote from you? Okay. What sort of stuff are you doing on your website that actually can encourage people the confidence to pick up the phone and call you? Mm. And then once they do get a quote from you, how do you make that quote 10% more effective? Rather than writing on a, like a scratch pad and email it someone, do a three-page Canva PDF that has some before and after photos of similar work you've done. That inspires confidence. There's a 10% win. Yeah. Then what are you doing in terms of any proposal? Say, well, okay, you know, we can do your, plum, your tiling work, but we can also do regrouting your kitchen at the same time or what, I'm making stuff up here or, you know, you know, I'm going to mow your lawn but I'll do your gathers as an option mm. extra. Like, how are you actually offering those optional extras as part of your services in an easy, systematic way? Mm. And then are you just praying that good service is going to require generate the customer to come back to you? No, what are you doing to actually get your clients to come back? Like, my garden is a perfect example. Like, does my head in. Like, I am not one, you know, if you look at my hands, like, the worst I've ever had is a, is a paper cut. Like, I'm, I'm not manual labour. And, like, I have to call him when I can no longer see my three-year-old in my backyard because the grass is too long. Like if he just called me every X amount of weeks and said, Pete, it's been four weeks since I cut your lawn. It's probably time for a recut. Can I come on Saturday? Yeah, mate. No problem, Darren. But he hasn't got a system in place. He just, you know, because he's hoping the good service, I mean, I'll call him. I'm too bloody busy. Like it wouldn't be hard for him mm. to just put something in his calendar or even just say, Pete, I'll be there every four weeks mm. and just systemize it. It's a bad example, but there's so many businesses who just don't want to feel like salespeople or feel mm. pushy, but it's like you're actually helping your clients mm. out. Yeah. And that's a very simple thing you can put in place to get a, like, a very simple 10% win and probably more. You probably get a 40% increase in repeat business. Because think about it, like if I only call him every six weeks when I can't see my son in the backyard because the grass is too long, I'm seeing him eight times in a year. If he called me and said every four weeks, he'll see me 12 times. That's a 50% increase in the amount of revenue I'm going to give this guy. Mm. And it's going to help me out. So it's not, that's not a 10% win. That's a 50% yeah. win mm. in that one lever. Imagine if starting out your business that, you know, because you haven't done stuff for, for a while or whatever, you can go and look at these seven areas and the first time through, you get 20% wins in every area because there's just so much opportunity. Over time, it does get harder and harder to get your 10% wins because you're mm. maxing out everything and you're doing really well. But, hey, you can sit from your yacht and worry about that problem. Um, but, like, that's the crazy thing. It's like for so many people, it's like you can get some significant wins really easy. Mm. Even just by <laughs> – here's a crazy story. There was a, a digital agency I worked with once sort of helping him put this into his business. And we are sitting down talking about his um, suspect to prospect. Ratio. He had like a website where you'd go onto the website and you're like, yeah, I want to book a, 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 um, a discovery call, for want of a better term, with his agency. I want to get a website done, I fill out a form online to get a discovery call. And that was his suspect to prospect scenario. Suspect, someone comes to the website, a prospect is someone who actually books and turns up to this discovery call where you can actually find out what the hell they want and then quote them. So we're sitting there going, okay, great, that's awesome let's go and look at what are you doing? Show me this system and pull it up on your, in your software application. And he went in there and he realized that his credit card expired four months ago. And that process hadn't worked for four friggin' months. So he didn't have to do anything new. Didn't have to f- create any new solution to his business or new idea. He had to just fix a hole in his bucket. And that gave him technically a 10% or more win because if you look at his last four months, he was losing suspects or prospects because people were filling out this form that he never saw work, he'd never follow them up. So he was having a very poor suspect to prospect ratio or conversion rate if you wanna use that term. Mm. But by just fixing a problem because he spent time fucking looking at it, <laughs> he actually got a massive win. So sometimes even just the first kind of walkthrough for one of a better term you, mm. you do when you look at your business through this framework we'll or this lens, you actually have massive wins because you didn't realize shit was broken. Oh, I didn't realize that that autoresponder wasn't emailing people after they purchased. Oh, I thought our staff always attached that second PDF to the quote that lists our other services. I didn't realise that our sales team weren't always asking, would you like the socks with the shoes you were selling? You know, I didn't realise those things weren't happening because I thought they were. I told my staff Mm. two years ago, that's the process. I trained them when they were onboarded and I assumed they were doing it for the last three years. Well, no. So sometimes you can get some massive wins in your business just by just understanding and spending time going what is a suspect for us and what are we doing to influence that what is a prospect what is a conversion etc etc you just get massive wins without even
0: be creative just plugging the damn holes that you didn't know were there mm. which is pretty cool too can you sit down over like six eight week period and you can walk through any any business in any niche, any industry, like you've obviously done this. Yeah, absolutely. I
2: think funeral homes are hard to get repeat transactions with, (laughs) but um, besides then, besides that industry, pretty much any business it applies to really, You know, and you can kind of make the argument. Well, you know, if you could do a good funeral for someone, the the people that in the funeral <laughs> parlour are going to die at some point. So you can kind of get them as clients for well, transactions. I mean, you could create your own
1: leads if you really uh, want. Technically to Technically, you it. could absolutely. <laughs>
2: um, but yeah, absolutely. So like, there's you know, lots of businesses that I've worked with over the years, whether I've, I've invested in them or we just consult with them to we sit down and work this through. We yeah. um we come in and we'll do things like just do a one day workshop and help them just understand what the framework is in in their language and their mm. business, and then we leave them to go about it from there. Other clients we work with, we sort of hold their hand and we catch up as you sort of said, every month for seven or eight months, and we go, okay, what is it? What is the lever here? How do we define it? How do we clarify it? What are you currently doing? What's the best way to get this ten percent win? And sometimes it is a whole new idea. Sometimes it's, it's just improving what you're currently doing, um, and sometimes it's just fixing a hole. And then you know they go off and they implement it and they you know own it for a month. And we come back the following month and make sure they've got the result they want. Tick. Okay. Let's look at the next lever, and yeah. we work through that way with them. So we can do that as a service. People can just do it themselves. There's you know no crazy IP in this. You know, yes, it's a name and it's, it, there's a model and there's a canvas and some tools around that we have. But you can listen to this podcast and go, oh yeah, okay, I'll spend time and do it and have yeah. some success yourself. You know? mm. Yeah.
0: Mm.
1: Is it. So you've written a book about that. That's called Cadence. Yeah. So say? it's
2: it's a book called Cadence. It's based on a, so it's a, it's a story. And mm. it's, I started writing it as a traditional business book. And I'm like, this just doesn't feel right. Mm. Probably the the post traumatic stress of my first book in terms of trying to be too much of <laughs> an expert. So the, the book Cadence is actually written as a story, and it's based it's a it's based on a true story of a guy who is training for his first Ironman triathlon, and he's a business guy and he goes to a guy who owns a bike shop to be his coach for the, the Ironman triathlon training. So over the 20-week period of this guy who's trained for his first Ironman, he actually helps the coach slash bike store owner implement this framework into their bike store business. So it's kind of, you get all the lessons and all the insights, but it's sort of told as a story, which um, is based on a true story that I, I did when I did my first Ironman. And I think it's just a lot more accessible for so many business owners because I think a lot of the business owners who need this support and this help you know, don't read lot of technical business books and probably won't enjoy it that way. So we kind of wrote it as a story to be a bit more accessible, enjoyable, uh, and fun.
1: I much prefer a book like that when yeah. there's a story told with value. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. It reminds me a bit of Robin Sharma, just not, yeah. to, not to compare you to compete. 100%, it's, yeah. it's that kind of approach. It's yeah.
2: that fable story kind of approach. Um, and the, I can't get any credit for this, but if you listen to a podcast, you must obviously like audio stuff. The audiobook is actually really cool. It won one audio book of the year a few years ago because the guys who did the production of the audiobook because it's a story, they added all these sound effects through it, okay. which I didn't expect, and it's really cool. <laughs> in that, like, okay, in the story, like, sort of, you know, I had an editor help me write the, the story part of it. It's like, you know, as the the owner JJ walks out of the store, he slams the door in the, you know, behind you, and you actually hear like a, the, the door slam in the audiobook. So That's it kind cool. of like keeps you engaged as well, yeah, which is yeah, really right. cool. So it's a it's a fun audio book to to listen to. So.
1: Mm. Hmm. Is there anything You don't do Just out of curiosity Because you've been <laughs> Dropping a few little Little subtle nuggets In between Like I casually Did an oh. Man. You said you're the chairman Of some club and I do too much yeah.
2: That's why that is, that is We we're, were catching <laughs> yeah. up For
1: lunch Before we got this
2: and I, was talking, I was just bitching you About how much We've got going on <laughs> um, I've got a very Very understandable wife um, That lets me do Some crazy stuff So I think, you know, it's, it's all been an evolution really. Like it's, when you say it in like one big bucket, it's like, it sounds ridiculous and it, and it kind of isn't, I've got to stop doing stuff, but it's all kind of been an evolution. Like the Mm. MCG story was all I kind of did except for sell shoes. Then we had the telco business and that kind of just evolved over time. And then obviously, you know, like most 18 year olds, they're kind of self-sufficient and look after themselves. They need a bit of parenting and guidance every now and again, but they kind of look after themselves. That's how I look at the telco business. It's 18, 19 years old. Mm. It kind of can look after itself like an 18-year-old can. It just needs a bit of parenting every now and again to go, that's just idiotic, don't do that. Um, so that's so that's how I kind of the telco business doesn't need me in it as much as it used to. I kind of just got to make sure it's not, you know, shitting on itself and throwing up on itself like most 18-year-olds <laughs> do. Besides that, it's okay. So I kind of like that can kind of sit in its own box and do its own thing. I'm only there a little bit. And I get to teach Deacon, like, which is you know roughly a day a week. Um, Which is good. So, kind of, it's all just been sort of packed on top of each other as things kind of become automated, systemated, and controlled. Doesn't mean there's not, you know, too many plates spinning and plates break all the time. But that's my self-diagnosed ADHD that I just can't stop saying no to shit.
1: Mm.
0: Do you
2: do you believe in balance? Um, I don't know, not really. And I think the (laughs) good question. The way I look at balance is that I think it's impossible to, to be always in balance. I think if you look at stuff over like a 12 month period, okay, you can have equality or balance there. Mm. But I think things, there's always going to be something out of balance or, yeah. you know, in, you got to say, okay, hang on, you know, wifey. A you know, bad example, I don't think it's going to help. But like, obviously, during COVID, um, you know, there was not much travel and, and that sort of stuff. Like, I've been away, I think, from my family at least. Generally, about it's worked out the other day. My wife and I was talking about it. one week a month every month this year. I've been overseas four or five times, I've got other stuff going on. So, this year's been a very out of balance year for me with travel um, compared to the last couple of years. So I've been at home the whole time because of COVID and all that sort of stuff. So, that's been out of balance this year, but it was imbalanced probably too far the other way. The last couple of years, my wife was like, Get the hell out of the house. Um, whereas so I've gone okay fine I've gone too much other way mm. so I think there's always this, this sort of pendulum swing yeah. um, that I don't know have you read you know Ben Cousins a football player Yeah. so I remember like when he was going through his crazy media attention yeah. <laughs> around sort of all his his drug staff and all that stuff I remember him talking about that I can't, I'm going to completely screw this quote up but I remember he, t- he spoke about in his book and in a few interviews that the reason he was successful in the footy field is that his pendulum swung from one end to the other that he was like he, whatever he was doing he was completely in it like he was like okay if I'm going to party I'm going to bloody party <laughs> yeah. um, but if I'm on the footy field training I'm going to train like no other person yeah. so he, he was never in balance now you, I, I would absolutely agree that his pendulum swung in you know mm-hmm. the wrong areas but there was always a pendulum swinging and like you know it was terrible and sad and all that sort of stuff but I think that if you look at a lot of people that's it's just the nature of, of that, that mm. you can't sort of just be dead even on the pendulum. You've got to be swinging on some direction, hopefully right. not swinging into drugs and crazy partying, but like, you know, okay, I'm traveling a lot this year or, um, um, you know, one business is taking more of my focus at the moment than the other. So I, you know, it's not like, oh, okay, here's my 40 hour work week and here's three hours here every week and four hours here every week and two hours there. It's never like that. Mm. Just weeks will go all over the shop, which some people can't handle. Some people can. Um, it's, bloody crazy but there is no balance in that but yep. it, it works for me
1: i've always found the pendulum such an interesting metaphor for life because i'm very similar to you i think the same. We, we swing one way to all in and yep. then it's like oh okay let's <laughs> let's go the other way and then it's like hard to get back to yep. swinging that way but the people that don't want to swing are the people that are just stuck yeah i think so they just like they don't move they're not really going anywhere in life yep. and they're just sort of like yeah whatever yeah but the people that want to swing and like experience all sides of life, yep. they're the ones that are either the most successful or, or <laughs> yeah. the crackheads on the street. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> it's,
2: a, it's a damn fine line. I'll give you that.
1: Absolutely. But I, I don't know. That's, that's
2: it's, it's worked for me to some degree. And you know, I don't easily sit here and say like, you know, nothing's buddy perfect and mm. like maybe I should stop doing something and saying no to other projects and, and do some stuff. But, you know, it's sort of how I seem to operate and, and somehow, I don't know if I say sane, but stay
0: engaged in the world. Yeah. One thing I admire about you, though, is you still find the time to prioritise adventure. Or like, yeah, absolutely. Tr- you know, pushing yourself, challenging yourself on a personal <laughs> level. That's how I actually connect to Will. And then, oh, so just a background, like me and Luke, we attended Will's, Will Frost. Yeah, Will yeah. Frost, his three-day winter retreat. Yep, awesome. And um, the reason, the re- how I got into Will was through his posts on LinkedIn. No shit. So yeah. Will did his, like, birthday so event with yeah, a bunch of mates.
2: Yeah, every year, me and I mean, I try and... Like it's one of these, like, everyone's done it. You sit with your mates at a pub and you're like, that'd be really cool to do. Let's go and do this crazy adventure or do whatever it might be. No one ever buddy, does it. Mm. I'm in a lucky situation where I've got some, some t- a team around me that can go, no, like, I'm going to take that crazy idea we had on a 3am on a Sunday afternoon at the pub mm. and actually make it happen. So every year me and a bunch of mates try and do something crazy every year. And it sort of started off initially with just a, a, a Peter Palooza, we called it, which is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> it, was the first, it was my first birthday after the pandemic. Um, and we, we always did adventures beforehand, but that was kind of where we sort of really took it. So we went and hired a house for a long weekend and did some crazy adventures. And, and I got Will um, to come in and run like a breathing and Wim Hof meditation ice bath thing for, for mates at the house we hired. Um, and then it's kind of evolved from there into some other crazy adventures every year. So that's sort of, yeah. Was, yeah. That, was that one? Yeah that,
0: w- yeah, that was the one, yeah. Yeah. What are the
2: yeah? What's the adventures?
1: crazy, craziest? Um,
2: the so last year was pretty nuts. We ended up so last year it it blew out with a few more people, and we hired two old school sailing ships. I think pirate ships, you know, old school <laughs> sort of sailing ships. So we hired two of those from Hobart last year, and we went sailing around outside Tassie. Wow. We had like they, they both came with some crew, but we had to sort of you know climb the masts and deal at the two in the two in the morning and all that sort of shit. Um, so that was a crazy thing last year that we did. So we had literally there was. 24 of us I think all up over across two boats and went you know pirates sailing around Van Diemen's land for, <laughs> for three oh or yeah. four days this year um, we went and did snow camping and hiked to the top of Kosciuszko so probably Hell kind of it. a similar thing to what you might have done with Will yeah. um, so we did that we you know, camped in the snow for a couple of nights and tried to get to the top of Kosci but you know after a crappy snow season we still couldn't make it to the top I think, I think we were there for the one weekend there was a bloody blizzard so we like total white as we tried to get to the top and the guides got us lost and all that sort of stuff in so, it, you know, you know didn't make it to the top of Cozzy, but that was still a pretty cool adventure. And I'm literally in the process of working out what next year's craziness Mm, is going to be.
1: So Chuck and Luke on there, on the guest list. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's kind of
2: fun. This is one of those things like, you know, because everyone is so busy and a lot of my mates own businesses and and kind of similar circles. It is very easy to kind of just get in a routine, whether it's crazy pendulum swinging or just, you know, whatever it might be, it's not get out of your comfort zone. And I'm a big believer in sort of challenging yourself and discomfort and and doing that sort of stuff. So it's a good kind of reminder that we Mm. book it. Six or nine months out, it's in the calendar and yeah. it's just, we've got to do something every year to kind of make sure that, you know, life is pretty crazy and a bit mm. of fun.
1: It's interesting. We had this uh, chat on the last podcast because it was episode 50 and I wasn't like feeling it. Okay. I was just like a bit over it, you yep. know, doing the same thing consistently. Absolutely. But what we put it down to was the lack of adventure. Yep. Yeah. We stopped going on adventures and that was like the reason we started this podcast. Yeah. Um, awesome. So now it's like, what's the intent? It's like, let's go on some fucking adventures. Yeah, Nice. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I'll share this with you guys, but I haven't I haven't really shared publicly ever anyway since. So, the next book I'm working on is 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 a book called the Pale List. So we all have bucket lists, right? Do we want to. So we have a bucket list we want to achieve before we die. So this is more of a parenting book. So it's got nothing to do with you guys yet, as far as I know. Not that we know. That. <laughs> not that we pay okay for you know yet. Yeah. Um, that as parents, like we should have a pale list for our kids because you know, like you know, you have a, a, a pail and shovel. So the kids' version of a bucket is a pail. Right. So you have a pale list as a parent for the things you want to achieve or get across to your kids before they, before their childhood dies. Oh, so it's kind of this concept my wife and I have. So, you know, it's not necessarily about adventures necessarily, but it's what are the lessons or experiences that you want your kids to have? Changing a tire, mm. dealing with discomfort, learning how to deal with money, pushing yourself on an adventure. So I'm trying to convince my wife at the moment to allow me to take our 11-year-old next year to base camp of Everest, mm. and that would be the basically the storyline of explaining this concept of pale List. So it's basically, okay, we're going to go on this adventure and that would be the, the backdrop of the story of the book. But then throughout sort of the challenges that we'd face kind of organising this and getting to base camp, we can then go off into kind of tangents around sort of, okay, well, we have to work out the finances and this is the lesson we want to teach our son about that or seeking discomfort. So mm. kind of this concept of the pale List that we have for our kids, what are all the things we want him to achieve and understand and learn before he, his childhood dies and paint it with the backdrop of a, a crazy adventure at the same time. So... That's the next That's thing I'm cool working
1: on. That's
0: a cool concept. Before your really childhood dies. Yeah.
2: Because, yeah. you know, you get yeah, with the bucket list. But it's because, like, you know, and when you turn 41 or 42 and you've got seven kids, you kind of realize your mortality comes a bit more. It's like he's 10. He's got eight more summers yeah. before his childhood goes yeah. so it's eight, and really he's probably only five more summers with me because once he turns 15, 16 he's like dad fuck you off, suck you're boring Piss off yeah. Yeah, exactly so we've got four or five summers left of sort of him being in my control uh, <laughs> <laughs> not really it's like mate we're coming up you're doing this don't, um, but also it's like well hang on there's certain things I need to make sure he kind of understands about the world and about life to really strive beyond that and i think a lot of parenting is survival you don't necessarily have a plan against it you all have a bucket list of you want to achieve and most people's bucket lists are adventure sort of stuff i want to go to base camp i want to you know sail a little bit sundays i want to see the eiffel tower okay that's all good bucket list stuff but from a parenting thing is what's your pay list for your kids what do you want your kids to have experienced and it could be camping because like how many kids these days never camped? Mm. it could be changing a tire as i said before it could be Going into Burke Street Mall and handing out roses to mm. twenty people and making him feel shit scared mm. of going up to a stranger and giving him like a rose, that. like just like, that builds confidence. That mm. builds challenges. So it's all those kind of things that um, we're trying to figure out how to sort of make a book out of that to mm. sort of share what we're trying to do with our kids, hopefully not screw them up along the way. And thinking a crazy adventure with either you know Kakoda Track or Base Camp it could be a really cool storyline. Yeah, yeah.
1: Kokoda Track's been on my mind for. Yeah, years. I'm yeah. trying to figure
2: out which ones. Like it's interesting because obviously there's probably more danger with base camp, Everest, base camp. Base camp obviously yeah. you've got the altitude and you've got the plane into Lulu or Lala wherever it is like that's a tricky bit but in theory apparently Kokoda's a harder walk than Everest is because of the humidity and stuff like mm. that apparently it's so, very up and down as yeah. Well. yeah so I'm trying to figure out what my non-sporty 11 year old kid can survive <laughs> um, and, and also my wife let me do with our 11 year old son so that's the next, that's my current kind of challenge adventure I'm trying to figure out that I, you know it'd be good for him to do but it also it's like you know, it'd be cool backdrop for a story of a
0: book oh <laughs> so right. that's kind of half Fucking of it no, you've got me intrigued mate. <laughs> yeah. how's he how's he doing with the idea how's he wrapping his head around that
2: uh, I don't he's agreed to it but I don't think he realises it yet <laughs> yeah. and I, I think the reason I think,
1: I'll do it well I think the reason
2: he agreed to it is his head "Can we make like a YouTube channel out of it while we do it oh, I'm hell like yeah. hell yeah so I think that's what it got yeah. him excited about being a YouTube but yeah. <laughs> yeah. not the actual adventure bit <laughs> we'll deal with that as we go so you know you're getting with the honey and you're sort of getting the lessons underneath it's like yeah okay we'll do a YouTube channel with it and you know we'll go from that and it's like mate you can't let your followers down now they're watching you You gotta make it yeah so yeah who knows where this goes but i think the concept of the payer list and the idea of that's something that i'd love to kind of you know share a bit more so
0: there's a lot of journey not the destination Mm, about that 100 because it's yeah because again you're sharing the lessons along the way
2: yeah and and it's not like you know the idea of the payer list really is not to take your kids on one specific adventure and teach them everything you want to do on one adventure it's more that you know over the course of your parenting till their childhood dies, what are all the things you want them ex- to experience? And that's kind of what the main story is going to be about. But I thought, you know, one adventure that then has a lot of tangents and yeah. examples is kind of a better way to kind of tell the story. Yeah. There's a book I recently read called The Comfort Crisis, which I think is really cool. It's a, it's a story about a guy who went to um, Alaska on a hunting trip. Um, is That's kind of the, the backbone of the story, but it goes off on lots of tangents around, you know, how we all live in comfort too much these days, that we don't push ourselves, we don't challenge ourselves, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. It's not good for our health or our mental well-being, et cetera, et cetera. And the way Michael wrote that book in terms of the story within a whole bunch of science and – Side stories, I think, would be a really good model to take for the, this mm-hmm. pale list idea I'm trying to put together. So I'm just like, mm-hmm. like I did, I, r- I ripped off the MCG story from the guy in um, Brooklyn who yeah, did yeah. the M who sold the Brooklyn Bridge. I'm ripping off the storybook from Michael and you're making it hyper pale. You're
0: just a fraud, hundred percent, absolute yeah,
2: yeah. fraud. Just rip people off. Yeah, yeah. You're an artist. Yeah, I'm an artist. <laughs> yes. yeah. yeah, model. I'm good at modelling people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you're a model yourself,
0: <laughs> Can we talk about the NBA Summer League? Sure. Because that was a recent adventure that you went Absolutely. on. Absolutely. And that also tied into business and the, the framework as yeah. well.
2: Yeah, uh, a little bit of the framework. So, because yeah, I mentioned Lucy, I, I teach a class on this framework at, at Deakin University. So my role there is a professor of practice, which is just the wankiest title, but I love it. <laughs> so I teach this class three times a year. And I also kind of do what I refer to as creative projects for Deakin. Other stuff that sort of, well, what else can we do that gives the students really interesting experience that ties in with their business degree that isn't just a traditional class? Because in our seven levers class we call it the business development clinic is we get students in their final year of their undergrad or first year of their postgrad and we put them with a real world business a real small business and they have to learn the framework apply it to the client's business and then present and pitch them with a 5000 word report on one 10% win concept yeah. so they actually are sort of taking all the stuff they've learned for their degree and applying it with a real world business You know, actually pitching, consulting, writing a project brief. So that's kind of the experience we give them It's a real-world experience. So that's kind of what I'm trying to do with Deakin is other real-world unique experiences. And with the NBA Summer League, um, the guys who run the NBA Summer League for the NBA at the exact same time run this thing called the Business of Basketball Immersive, which is this phenomenal program inside the arena during NBA Summer League. So those who don't know, NBA Summer League is the pre-season tournament the NBA run every July in Las Vegas. So for some crazy reason, Deacon now pay me to take students to Las Vegas in July. But what we do is we take some students from from the university and they come across to Summer League with me and they go through this Business of Basketball Immersive Program, which is this ridiculously immersive and intense six-day program. So over the course of the week, they get um, classes taught by industry. So... Agents, NBA TV media, um, front office staff of NBA company of clubs. Sorry, come in and teach the the collective bargaining agreement and the media landscape of the NBA and all that sort of stuff. They get a whole bunch of guest speakers. Jerry West has spoken the last two years. He's the actual NBA logo. Um, the two lawyers who are on both sides of the recent collective bargaining agreement. Um, CEOs of the clubs, Mark Cuban from the Dallas Mavericks, came in and spoke a couple of years ago. So there's all that experience. Then you also choose a major. So if you want to choose, let's say, scouting analytics during the week, after all the class time in the day, you then go courtside at night and you scout NBA games with an NBA scout to give you feedback. Oh wow! If you want to do media, you go and sit on the um, uh, courtside, not courtside, but on the the walkway of the of the stadium at night in like an ESPN desk, and you do live stream daily recaps of the game. Wow. So you experience real world oh, media no, stuff. So cool. And then the third part of this week, like it's like it's like a 70-hour week. It's insane. The third part of the program is on the very first day, you get put in teams of like five or six and you get given an NBA franchise for the week. So you might be the Bucks, you're the Bulls and I'm the Celtics, for example, whatever it might be, with your team of five and you have to figure out what you're going to do with your roster that fits within all the NBA salary cap rules and regulations. And then on the Wednesday at lunchtime, you come in and you pitch to a panel, which I – been very blessed to sit on the last couple of years and you pitch to us who are your ownership board last year we made the playoffs this year we think we want to win the conference championship and we want to go over the salary cap which means we are going to pay a luxury tax of this these are the players we want to get rid of these are the kind of players we're going to try and go after and you try and pitch us what you know your plan is and we give you feedback as the ownership group and then on the Thursday afternoon they open up a trade window mm. so for like five hours it's trade window and all the the students at yeah. this program go and negotiate and trade players within the salary cap and all that sort of stuff um, with each other. And then on the, the, the following day, basically they then come and present, okay, here's our final roster. Here was our plan. Here's what we executed. Here's what we think is going to work. And you get marked and graded and feedback on that. Like it's the most intense, amazing week for a business basketball junkie. Um, and we're taking students across that every year now effective. with Deacon, which is What are you
1: awesome. giving me for Yeah. Hmm. I want Levine. I'll give you... Levine and three first round draft yeah, picks. Not yeah, not just Levine. <laughs>
0: be, yeah. well, it's, it literally, that's how it works.
1: Because
2: yeah. obviously the students over the week learn like all the salary cap limitations and all the different rules around what you can trade and can't trade and what first round picks you can't trade and all this sort of stuff. So it's like it's such an intensive week. It's unbelievable. That's so cool. So mm. that's a, a really cool thing we're doing with Deakin students every year now, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Take them across. So we're the first international university to partner with these guys on this, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So, Yeah.
0: Man, oh, just a few years too late for me. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh well.
2: Yeah. You know, literally like no, you can actually go and just buy tickets to this thing directly if you wanted to. You don't it, like it's it's they only have a hundred students a year and it's not overly cheap, but you can just register and apply directly if you wanted to. Yeah. Obviously being a deacon student, there's some, some extra benefits and some part scholarships and all
0: No,
1: but We know the stuff, guy.
2: There you go. We know the guy. So yeah, so, but yeah, so <laughs> you can you can just go and um, you know the guys in at the NBA do that. It's amazing.
0: How was that? experience for you personally and i cool. love it it's
2: good fun I, cause I just get to hang out like yeah. you know i don't have to have much responsibility i've got to sort of chaperone a few students and get to hang out with a bunch of friends in in the basketball community because the cool thing about summer league is that m- the clubs only really play their rookies or prospective recruits so none of the big names play it's only you know fir- if you're in the first few years of your nba career you might play summer league um or players i think about drafting so it's something like 85% of the players or 70% of the players who actually play during NBA Summer League two-week window don't actually end up playing with the NBA club. Yeah. Mm. So it's this melting pot of just global basketball. Like, you know, all the Aussie coaches and scouts and agents are there because, you know, okay, the Aussie team here, Melbourne United or Sydney Kings, where it might be, I might be looking for a new recruit to come play in the team. They'll be at Summer League looking for them because they're generally speaking the best players who are available in the world playing at Summer League, trying mm. to get an NBA ticket. But if they don't they still want a career. So like all who's who of basketball hang out – or hang out, sorry, if I speak English properly – hang out in Vegas for this two-week period. Um, so it's really cool to hang out with a whole bunch of people, meet new people, see friends I've known for years and yeah. stuff like that. So it's really cool to hang out and then just be able to walk downstairs and sort of hear Jerry West speak to a room of only 100 people and tell some crazy stories and stuff like that too. So it's a, it's really cool. I'd just like to be able to put those things together for Deacon just yeah. to sort of say this is a pretty cool experience being able to pull off and, and make happen. So it's kind of fun to – know make those deals work too
1: have you always been a basketball fan
2: yeah absolutely so i grew up with the john supercats um which is you know no longer an nbl team (laughs) in the 90s they were you know they were around and we were very much involved in those guys and then sort of in the early 2000s with the the aba at the time we're sort of involved a little bit um so i've always
0: sort of been a basketball guy yeah Yeah. i remember during your time in the states you put out a linkedin post and it was intriguing and i want to mention it it was i think it was around meeting someone you looked up to maybe it was jesse itzler i can't
2: Ah, oh, that was a different US trip. Oh, okay. So that was, yes, yeah, so one of the crazy things they did this year. <laughs> it's <just laughs> sounding ridiculous. Um, so one of my bucket list things this year is I went to uh, what they call K Academy. So Duke University, for the last 20-odd years, have run this thing called K Academy. So Coach K is a really famous oh, yeah. Duke coach. Yeah. And he, he runs this, he's been running this charity event for the last 20 years. It's basically an over-35s fantasy camp. So they get a hundred or so <laughs> over thirty-five-year-old guys, and you go to Duke for a week, and you basically pay a shit ton of money to basically be a, a Duke player for, the, for for a week. So what happens is, on the first day you turn up, um, you get put in teams of like three on three, and they literally they have they have the current college Duke squads there. They get a whole bunch of um, past players come back, so a bunch of NBA players like Jason Tatum was there the year before. He comes and hangs out for the week and he is one of the coaches. Wow, Like it's insane. So they have the current, coaches are the, the current players are the assistant coaches and then Duke alumni who have gone on to be pros of some level are the head coaches. So on the first day you turn up and you play three-on-three three, and the coaches basically scout you. And then <laughs> at night they have the draft. So it's a big welcome dinner and they have the draft and they, they, they draft the teams. And then over the following four or five days, I can't remember how much longer it was. You basically go and play a whole bunch of two or three games a day um, in your team. You do training sessions. You do sessions with the Duke's, you know, um, fitness team. You do video sessions in the um, locker room, where they actually break down your own video plays. And play. it's like it's literally like living like living like a Duke athlete for for five days. It's insane. And Jesse Itzler has been, I think, he was he's been like. Nineteen out of the twenty years it's been running. It's oh, crazy! Oh, like he's, he's a participant. Yeah, he's a participant. Yeah, yeah. He, he, So he's one of the guys who play every year. So that's the guy yeah, I yeah, told you yeah, recently yeah. about. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesse's awesome. So yeah, Jesse was was one of the, the crew of, yeah. the, of the athletes who were there. So it's like, here's a crazy story, right? So, uh, the way I uh, sorry the way I under, the way I understand it, so Jesse owns part of the Atlanta Hawks, right? Yep. So the way that deal happened apparently is x amount of years earlier a bunch of these regular K Academy regu- like, you know, ath- you know, athletes got together and went, let's just buy the Atlantic Hawks, Atlanta Hawks. So the actual crew of people who attend this thing like, are pretty insane. Yeah. So yeah. So the, the three or four, the, the main guys who bought the Atlanta Hawks met at K Academy and built a friendship over a few years and then suddenly went, oh, we've got enough money. Let's go and buy the Atlanta Hawks. So like that's the insanity. That, that's the insanity. Of the group of guys who go to this event apparently. Jesus, it's crazy. And there's girls too, so I
0: shouldn't say guys. Guys yeah. and girls. Yeah. Damn. Did you did you get to shake hands with any like cool people?
2: Um. Well, Jesse. I got to hang out with Jesse a fair bit. And I think the LinkedIn post was kind of me sort of talking about. I got I got a um an, a couple of intros from some mutual friends into Jesse saying, Hey, Pete's coming to town. You know, for whatever reason, I think you should meet him. He's a pretty cool dude. Whatever. So that was really cool to get those intros to Jesse. And then my post was talking about that. I kind of just. Not fucked up the intro, but I kind of – we hung out and we chatted a fair bit over the week, which is great. But I probably didn't do a good enough job to make a great impression, which is fine, whatever. But I was kind of talking about like, you know, Jesse's a pretty, pretty successful guy. He's got a big audience. Um, he'd be a really cool guy that to actually have a friendship with. And I think we could get on pretty well with some of the crazy stuff we both do. And for whatever reason, you know, I was too focused on trying to, you know, hit my foul shots or whatever it was um, – the post I wrote about was just that, like, kind of you missed your shot in that, you know, I stuffed it up. I didn't probably impress him well enough or talk to him well enough or whatever it was. I can't remember exactly what I wrote, but like, sometimes it's okay to miss your shot is kind of mm-hmm. what I think I wrote yeah. on that post.
0: Is that right? Yeah, pretty yeah. much, yeah. yeah. I mean, that goes back to the to our early convo. Like, even Steph Curry has a bad shooting. night. Like, 100%. Yeah. you yeah. can
2: never be fully on. No, exactly. It was we talking about that before about some stuff you've had this week, you yeah. know, and, you know, that's a perfect example to kind of, you know, top and tail this with is that, you know, I was – and I thought I'd shout on LinkedIn just to kind of say, like, you know, yeah, I had the opportunity, had some great intros, and I still kind of went, meh, with it. And I was hanging out with him for five days. Mm. You know, it's a pretty mm. intimate, like, it's only 100 people this thing for five days. It's a pretty intimate group you get to spend five days with, so. Mm. But that, those things happen. You miss your shot sometimes. Yeah. it's got to convince my wife to let me go again next year and make it up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> What's the – we obviously we the theme of this podcast it's called the call to adventure yeah so it's big on that but yeah I guess the question for you is like what's the next big call to adventure big or small
2: yeah well, I, I think convincing my wife to allow me to, to do this crazy adventure with my son is probably one of the next big things yeah. Um yeah there's no, there's nothing else crazy on, on the list really there's always, always there's always stuff going on so it's sort of hard to nail like what's the next big thing but I have to say probably the pale list concept the book. And hopefully an adventure to kind of be the backdrop of the story is probably the next big one with him. But I always try and sort of, you know, ask myself, when was the last time yeah. you did something for the first time? That's kind of, the, oh. that's kind of the, the, the way I'd answer that in a weird way is that like, when was the last time you did something for the first time? And that's sort of like what I try and say. Yeah, that's why I say yes to so too many things. It's like, I haven't done that before. Yeah, let's have a crack at that. Yeah, let's have fun at that. Okay, yeah. So that kind of what drives all of these adventures. Yeah. So the things we do with our, with my mates every year is we try and do something we've never done before that's, you know, when was the last time you sailed a pirate ship? When was the last time you snow yeah. camped? It's like very much out of our comfort zone. So that's kind of what drives the adventures. It's not like let's go and sail a boat around the Sundays because it's not as adventurous. It's not that far mm-hmm. out of your comfort zone. So that's kind of the... the we want the near-death
1: experiences. Yeah,
2: somewhat, yeah, as much as your wife and your kids will let you do, 100%. <laughs> yeah. you know, a pirate ship and a snow camping weren't really death-defying things, but they were definitely things you would never normally do yeah. and there's definitely discomfort around that mm. and it's, something, you know, it's the first time you do something. Like there's a great... Um, John Coyle is the guy's name. He's an ex-Olympic speed skater and he talks about this concept of time slowing down. To like in your you know, your teens and and when you're younger, summers seem to last forever. Like like some some when you were 10 and 13 and 16, were like those summers lasted months, not the weeks they were. And like, why is that so? And his theory, he talked about it really well. And I'll try and send send you a link to this show notes. You can kind of share the video. that He talks about that summers were really long and memorable in your teens and all that sort of stuff because you were doing new stuff. You were kissing girls for the first time. You were experiencing a little bit of freedom for the first time because your parents let you, you know, go to the surf beach by yourself and not stay at the caravan park or whatever it might be. So there's always new things going on. So during those times, you're soaking it all in. So your memories are bigger because they were new memories. So your summers last forever. And I think that's a really cool mm. concept. And it's sort of taking it forward is like, well, most of our lives as we get older – is this the same shit day in, day out, you know, really. Like are you having, is it, you know, are you having, do you have 20 years of experience or one year of experience just repeated 20 times? If you look at most 40-year-olds, you really just had one year of experience and you just repeated that year for 20 years. There's nothing new going on. So the idea is, well, how do we go and create these new experiences when was the last time you did something for the first time? So your years are packed with these wide-eyed first-time moments like you had when you were 15. So your years at 30, 35, 40, 25, whatever it is, mm. still feel like they did when you were 17. Mm. So your your summers last forever. So that's kind of, I guess, the philosophy that I have around that question of yeah. what's makes a big adventure. Hopefully there's lots of little random things.
1: Mm.
2: You know, taking my three-year-old son camping in, you know, that'll be a crazy adventure trying to him to sleep in a tent not in a cot mm. like that's going to be a crazy adventure i'm going to try and do over summer not a big thing really in the scheme of big adventures but it'll hopefully make that that weekend i'll be definitely wide-eyed going what the hell is going on with this three-year-old mm. so hopefully that will be like that weekend will feel like a week not a day and a half mm. so that's kind of the approach there
1: i have a, have a question for you I sort of put on the that cream top. on it it'll put, fix it in two days i <laughs> promise you <laughs> Sorry. (laughs) No, no, all good, all good. (laughs) Uh, As we discussed, like, our, I mean, hearing you speak about that, when we first started this podcast, we pretty much did an adventure every podcast. Love it. Like, (laughs) last year was packed, man. Like, fucking crazy year. It was good fun. Um, And uh, as I said, we'd we'd lost a little bit of that spark. So what we're trying to do with our guests is, is there anything that you would like to see us do or challenge us in any way? For our next podcast or just... So it's how you do it. the
2: podcast. You don't challenge you to do a nude yet?
1: <laughs> a nude podcast?
2: Yeah. I don't know.
1: You're uh, behind no. a
2: desk. I can't see your junk. I'm, like, I'm, not, I'm not saying I want to be that podcast guest. I don't. <laughs> I'm just thinking like, is that, is that the kind of challenge? Is like a way I mean, to do a podcast? I mean,
1: there's no right or wrong Yeah, answer. it's just like
2: throw whatever
1: at okay. the wall. Okay. Well, there's that one. I mean, like, there's <laughs> challenge and then there's also like <laughs> adventure. <laughs> so...
2: What do I reckon? All right. I've never seen a podcast done where they're like done over a hike. Mm. It's like everyone on wireless mics and you're just mm. chatting while you're walking. <laughs> yeah. Like it, would be, well, it, would, it might not be great audio, but it'd be interesting. Yeah. I had this idea years ago to run, do a podcast called barbecue Q and a, barbecue and a, so I was like sit around a barbecue and have like beers mm. and barbecue with mates. Mm. This was something and I filmed one episode of it about 12 years ago. And I think Hot and Spicy took that and made it much better with that the, 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 the hot sauce one. Hot, oh, it's a hot, uh, hot, hot ones. Hot ones, yeah, yeah. They've done that idea much better than I had. But like, you know, going outside and like actually doing something with your guests, I think, it'd be pretty cool. Yeah, you know, sitting around on microphones is great, yeah. and you get good content out of it. But what could you do that's actually different? Whether it's a mm. hike, or um, that'd be kind of interesting. I don't know, again, audio quality
1: um so we were like sort of contemplating this and having the discussion it's yeah. like do you do the challenge before and you talk about it and then you, so. yeah and then you you or you do like snippets of yeah like while you're doing the, the adventure yourself and you yeah. do it after or you talk about it before and then go on an adventure yeah you could do you could do the, the pre post and uh, and and yeah everything.
2: You're just like hey we're gonna here's an here's an adventure whatever it might be yeah and you talk about it beforehand, then you go and record you're doing it, and then you can dissect it afterwards. Yeah. And you actually do you actually record the podcast over like three weeks. Mm. So you do the first one and you, you edit it as one episode, mm. but you've got that time to reflect or panic um, beforehand. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah. I don't know what the event, I don't know what the challenge would be, but you go, okay, we're gonna sit down, we're gonna talk about it, and what are we worried about, what are we scared about, and then you actually do it, mm. and then you go, This is what happened. You kind of make sure you've got time in between to mm. kind of mm. dissect and think about it would be kind of a cool, yeah, cool way to do it. Um
1: so, if you had that idea in mind, what, that, what, would, the what, would, what be? would be the challenge? I
2: think it's going to be something that's discomfort, something that's like, you know, what makes you really awkward. Like, you know, like there's this book I read years ago called Rejection Proof. And I can't remember the guy who wrote its name, but he, he said all these, he set himself all these challenges to feel rejection proof. And I think one of them, from memory, and I'm probably going to get this wrong, but was like he had to go and just knock on random people's doors and ask, can you use the toilet? <laughs> And like, like, he's, but he set himself these random challenges, and it wasn't for a podcast or a YouTube or anything. He just did it for himself, and he wrote a book afterwards. So, <laughs> who knows, you know, what came first, chicken or egg? But like, is that the challenge? You got to go and uh, you got to go and you know, Eight. sit on ten people, ten random people's toilets. You don't have to do your business because that might be a bit too much. But you know, talk about it beforehand. What are your tactics? What are you? What are What <laughs> right. What are your, what are your, what are your open, yes. opening lines? Yeah. It's like how are you going to approach this? And you might discuss and plan your ten scripts, and you can sort of split test. Which wording comes first? Which one works? Then you go and test it and you do it. dissect it afterwards. Are you still feeling as nervous? Were you surprised which line to actually allow someone to say yes to? Mm. Um, you know, tried in different suburbs. Is, you know, Armadale going to give you a different response to Alwood compared to Northcote. <laughs> like I think Northgate's probably going to be more supportive than people in Armadale.
1: And then so we just start going out to the Bronx. Yeah, yeah. 100%. 100%. Okay. Broad Meadows. Broad Meadows <laughs> yeah. Yeah. there. You know, Up you're going to wear your, your
2: armor guard, you know, your, your shields and stuff.
1: And then I was just thinking we could have um, like walkie-talkies on. 100%. Oh, it's like, yeah. So yeah. Where, where are you even the
2: house, hidden mics so you can like this. Oh, I'm in the toilet now. And, oh my God, she let me in. Oh, she's really cute. Oh, I, I, wanna, you know, I don't know. Like that could be a good one. There you go. If you want a real challenge. Yeah, I like it. Maybe you can dial the knob back a little bit.
1: Well, no, see, this is good because it's like, I think if we get challenged like this, we can just do it the two of us. Totally. And then if there's like someone else coming in with an adventurous lifestyle, we can be like, all right, let's do your adventure with you. 100%. Um, But there could be challenges in between for just the two of us.
2: Yeah. Mm. Have you seen the YouTube channel, um, Yes Theory? Oh, yeah. yeah. They're big on those. Those boys are
0: awesome.
2: Yeah. Yeah. They're they're probably not done a toilet challenge, but they do that sort (laughs) of (laughs) Yeah. You know. Seek discomfort Kind of get out of your comfort zone Kind yeah, of stuff
1: Which yeah. is pretty cool Can I use your toilet just a camera behind yeah, you Yeah exactly <laughs> 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 Sorry, too much
2: If you do it with like A mic under your t-shirt You can you it the audio For a podcast that people going What the hell are you filming me Asking me this question Yeah
0: I'm seeing My vision now I'm seeing is Yesterday combined with Hamish and Andy Old school Hamish Yeah and absolutely That's on it the yeah. door dash yeah, DoorDash And, yeah. Door dash and yeah. the Three step yeah, yeah that was pretty cool <laughs> They <That> were good <laughs> Anything else you want to plug? Anything else you want to share? Oh, there's nothing I really to want to say.
2: plug. I think we kind of ironically just covered a few things. Yeah. So, you know, I, I just, you know, hopefully, you know, my crazy stories and bad puns and jokes kind of might inspire someone to do something that they didn't want to do, whether it's improve their business or go on a crazy venture with their kids or mm. knock on someone's door and ask them to
0: use their toilet. I mm. don't really care. Yeah. This convo has been multifaceted, multicolored, <laughs> and that's exactly what I expect from a Pete Williams chat. So awesome, It's man. been been an honor, been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much. Appreciate
2: man. having you boys. Hope it was some value for the audience. Yeah,
0: Definitely was. For sure. All right, team. Thanks All very right.
1: much. Ciao.